Perfect. All right, one uh, quick announcement before we dive into the message is last week we kind of gave an overarching kind of state of the church and talked about um, how we exist to glorify God as we treasure, apply, and proclaim the gospel. At the end, talked about our planted campaign that starts this September. And so if you're interested in helping with that, that's to help facilities, help future church playing, help future leadership development. Um, we're receiving those pledge cards uh, this month. You can put it in the offering box over by the sound booth. You can also just do the pledge online on Realm your account and just do it there. Thank you, church family, who are praying. Thank you for who are fasting. Um, we're asking the church to fast one time each week in September. So if you forgot, please uh, do two. I'm just kidding. You don't have to do two this week. But um, go forward in, in just asking the Lord for strength for that. If you haven't fasted much before, we can give you some resources about that if you haven't done it before. But I put a post on Realm this week, just specific things our elders are asking you to pray about during the, the fast. So please try to do that. Well, who likes music? Raise your hand if you like music. You are a person who likes music. Music. Woo, woo, yeah. All right. Music is powerful. And music is mysterious. If you watch an emotional movie, I'd, I'd encourage you to try this at some time. One of those scenes in a movie you're watching, but you push mute, and like it just, something's lost in the, in the scene. And, and like everything would be climactic, except you can't hear anything anymore. There's just no music. It's like, eh, eh. it like kind of goes flat. The suspense dies. Music moves us emotionally. Music can change a commute ride where you're stuck in traffic into a dance party. Ask me how I know. I've done that with the kids a bunch. Have some dance party. They get to rotate through different songs. Music can uh, play in your head for days. Some of us are those people who you get a lyric that just loops in your head. You wake up at night and it is still in your head. Music is powerful and mysterious. Studies show the link between songs we hear and emotions we feel, especially certain times of our lives. For instance, many adults continue to play the music that they liked in their teens and 20s. They just stay with it. Like you kind of reach this point in your teens and 20s and you're like, that's what I like. And then the rest of your life, you keep listening to that same music. I can rock out to some DC talk in the driveway when we're working out. Some Jesus freak. When my grandma, uh, Gigi was her name, had Alzheimer's, uh, she, she did not remember my name. But she remembered every word of every hymn that we would sing. It's amazing there's just this something about the power and mystery of music. Music is powerful and mysterious, and it's a wonderful gift from God. God made man in his image, and part of the capacity to relate to God is through music. We sing, we play instruments, and the mood changes. A little pro tip for parents in here. Uh, turning certain kinds of music on in your home can really calm things down. Like we like some classical music at times. It calms things down a bit or encourages or makes it playful. We are hardwired to like music and respond to music. It's powerful, but it's also mysterious. Like we as humans spontaneously start singing at times. 
And don't act like you don't. You do that. So if it's someone's birthday, you don't say happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you, dear whoever. Happy birthday to you. No, you sing it. We, we sing, right, Mr. Leroy? His birthday was 84 years old yesterday. Let's go ahead and sing to him, shall we? Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Leroy. Happy birthday to you. So 84 years old yesterday. Like there's just something about singing. You know, even it communicates camaraderie. You go to a Red Sox game up in Boston, and they start, sweet Caroline. Why do you know that? But you do. Like there's a camaraderie that happens in Music. Music is both powerful and mysterious. It's mysterious. You see this in the Bible. In Exodus, the people of Israel are about to die. Pharaoh is coming behind them. The Red Sea lies in front of them. Like, they are going to die, except God provides a way of escape through the Red Sea. And as they exit the Red Sea, they're safe. Their enemy is dead. What do they do? Do they just shrug and say, all right, let's move on with life. No, Exodus 15.1, the very first thing they do, Exodus 15.1, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. That's the very first thing they do. They celebrate. I was watching a Tennessee game. I'm a Tennessee fan. Last night, suspense, the game ends, and we are singing, Rocky Top, you'll, I mean, we just I start singing the song with the band as the the team's going. We sing to celebrate. Another mysterious part of God and how music works, 1 Samuel 16, 23, David takes the lyre, this is like a stringed instrument, and plays it for Saul. And it says in 1 Samuel 16, quote, Saul was refreshed and the evil spirit departed when David played his music. We don't know all the details there. I'd encourage you, if you want to study music and spiritual warfare, I don't really get all that, but there's some mystery there about God using music. Throughout the Old Testament, we find songs in the tabernacle, songs in the temple. In Zephaniah, we read this, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Our God sings. You didn't start singing as good as your voice might be or bad. You didn't start this. God started it. God sings, and we sing because God sings. In the New Testament, we find Jesus and his disciples sing a song right after they take the Lord's Supper. We find the early church sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. We see the future church who are gathered around Jesus' throne singing. It says in Revelation 5, And they sang a new song, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seal, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Singing, 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 singing. 
So song and music were invented by God, exalt God. And it seems like we'll enjoy music and singing for eternity. So it shouldn't surprise us that there's an entire book of the Bible dedicated to singing and music. It's the longest book of the Bible, the book of Psalms. You can open it to Psalm 1. It's the songbook of God's people, teaching us how to sing and teaching us what to sing. Today we start a series on the book of Psalms. Today's a message as we enter this songbook. This psalm is called the the doorkeeper psalm. You have to enter in here, and you'll see why as we study it. But throughout this series, we're going to look at many genres. So we're not spending the next three or four years on every psalm, all 150, just to let you know if you're like, okay, here we go. We're going to do this through about Christmas or so. And we're going to study different genres of a psalm or a few psalms in that genre to help us understand all the psalms, to, to, in your devotion time, be able to study and understand different psalms in your own personal study. Here are a few of the genres we'll be studying. Personal lament, community lament, thanksgiving, praise, wisdom, imprecatory psalms, where you're like calling down judgment on others. Those will be interesting. Royal psalms, enthronement of Jesus is on his throne. Pilgrimage psalms. We have psalms of ascent that would be sung as people walked up Jerusalem when it was the Passover or one of the feasts, and they would sing these songs on the journey. Friends, God's people have been, are now, and always will be a singing people. So we need to know the songs, and many would say the prayers of the psalms. So let's start with this doorkeeping psalm of Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so. They're like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word. The Psalter is broken up in five books, compiled before, during, and after the exile. The oldest psalm is Psalm 90, written by Moses. There are 12 written by Asaph, 12 written by the sons of Korah, but the majority of the psalms Possibly most likely this psalm as well is by David, King David. Fifty-seven of the psalms are quoted in the New Testament. It's a songbook, and it's the songbook of Jesus. We have to consider Jesus sang these songs. 
Jesus would read Psalm 1, this wisdom psalm that speaks of the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. Now, Christopher in a few weeks is going to be speaking a whole message on the genre of of wisdom psalms, so we're not doing that today. But we do want to look at Psalm 1 and how God tells us how we should enter this psalm, but enter all the psalms and then see all of Scripture in light of this psalm, God's holy word in light of this psalm. And here's what we find in this psalm. Someone or something will always influence you. It will form you, shape you. Someone or something will always have an undeniable influence in your life. Point number one is this, the undeniable influence of people. Verse 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Blessed is an important word. It speaks of happiness or contentment. Friends, how many of us would like a happy life, a content life? Well, all of us would. This word flows from the lips of the Savior In the Sermon on the Mount, the blessed life is not a life of luxury and ease. The blessed life is a life lived in perfect harmony with the Creator. How many of you guys know what a tuning fork is? A tuning fork, for you who play instruments, you have this little metal fork and you can like hit it on your leg. If you put it by your head, which looks a little weird, you can hear the sound. Or if you put it on your instrument, like like a violin or a guitar, you can actually hear the pitch that you want to tune one of the strings to, then you tune the other strings by that one string that you know is true. Friends, this is a a tuning fork. God wants us to tune our lives to his word, to, to make sure our lives are tuned according to that perfect note of God in his word, of the gospel. Friends, God saved you by his grace, and now you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before you were born that you could walk in them, be tuned in line with what he desires. Is your life tuned to the perfect pitch of Jesus Christ? See, David, the author of many of the Psalms, tells us what a life out of tune looks like. It is a life of gradual hardening, spiraling downward. It is a life walking in the counsel of the wicked. It is slow, sometimes imperceptible at first, but it's a becoming calloused. It's adopting the world's wisdom, the world's opinions, the world's values, and making them your own. Grabbing onto them. They're not just out there anymore. They are here Walking in the counsel of the wicked can be translated keeping in step with the wicked. Uh, you're keeping pace with them. Walking in the counsel of the wicked is the, is the hardening of the 1850s white man in America who knew slavery was wrong but said nothing and then gradually participated in the dehumanization of image bearers. It's the hardening of the current high school junior who sees friends claiming to change genders or say that marriage is meaningless or that homosexual and heterosexual lusts are morally fine, and they say nothing. 
And the hardening leads to curiosity, that leads to entertaining thoughts, that leads to walking out actions of immorality, and there's a gradual, deepened hardening. Here's the point. Walking by the wicked does not stop there. It does not stop with receiving counsel. It goes deeper, and that's what our text says. It takes us to standing in the way of sinners. Picture someone walking by someone that's speaking gossip or slander. The text would kind of imply they they shouldn't be in close proximity with the person anyway. But then they, instead of walking by and moving on, they stop. They linger. They ingest the counsel. The idea of standing here is more of a settled position. We often use this language with when we talk about where do you stand on something. It's a standing. I stand by this. It's a settled position, standing in the way or in agreement with sinners. It is the heart calcifying. But it doesn't stop there either. The text speaks of sitting in the seat of scoffers, the downward progression, walking, standing, sitting. The person who first was walking by the wicked is now immersed in it, taking a stand there, but then they're seated. They're comfortable with scoffing God. It's not just a settled position anymore. It's adversarial. It's an opposition. The NIV calls this being in the company of mockers. It's hard to be a mocker by yourself. I mean, you can, but a company of mockers, it's easy to mock when you're around other mockers. And friends, this is the easy way. This is the wide path that leads to destruction. At age 18, I was was on that path. I was on that path with basically all my high school friends. Everybody I knew was living for self, for pleasure, for athletic or educational success, for their boyfriend or girlfriend, for control of their life. We were enamored with trying to find our identity in something. And yet we were always thirsting for more, and yet finding every new thing ultimately unfulfilling. At 18, while working one week at a Christian camp because my brother worked there and they assumed I was a believer, so they invited me, I saw 14-year-olds reading their Bibles and praying and having this massive amount of joy as they did hard work around the camp. I realized they had something that I didn't. They weren't walking down that path. They weren't lingering on sin. They, they seemed somehow lighter, less weighty, less weighed down for sure. They were actually Christians. I had grown up around church. I had not found this before. I was mesmerized. I would just watch them. That's creepy. But I remember just watching them. And I wanted it. I wanted what they had. I wanted to get off the conveyor belt of my sin and destruction and sadness and unfulfillment. I wanted to know Christ. I wanted him as my king. I wanted what they had. So 
So here's what those 14-year-olds had, verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and leaf doesn't wither, and all he does, he prospers. Those 14-year-olds showed me this. Point number two, the undeniable influence of God's Word. The undeniable influence of God's Word. These 14-year-olds did this weird thing called a quiet time. It's like, what the heck is a quiet time? And why do you sit there on a rocking chair overlooking mountains with a Bible and pad and pen? Like, what are you doing? And yet they loved it. Every day. I remember a nerdy boy named Patrick sitting over here to my left, rocking and reading. I remember a pretty girl named Lydia just praying and smiling. I remember Kessid and Nathan. They loved Jesus, and they served Jesus, and they loved his word. Friends, there's an undeniable influence of people in our lives, whether that's those people around us or media or movies or music, they push us toward holiness or push us toward wickedness. But King David gives us a contrast, the opposite of someone being pulled down into evil. No, these are those who are firmly rooted They know and love God's word. He says, his delight is in the law or the word or the instruction of Yahweh, of the Lord. This is most likely speaking of the Pentateuch or the Torah. It's the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Thank you. Good job. Grounding in creation how God is the creator, grounding and understanding our fall and sin and, and the early pointers of redemption, this hope of the kingdom, God's people and God's place under God's rule and authority, blessing the nations. It's the meditation. And we can extrapolate on this today and understand this delight is in all of God's holy and errant word. This blessed man is delighting in his Bible He sees the life-giving realization of the Bible. I've recently been rereading the book God's Smuggler. It's one of my favorites. It's been super impactful in my life. The main guy in it is a guy named Andrew. He speaks of days in the military when he was just drinking heavily, and he honestly just says, I wanted to die. I saw life as kind of meaningless And as he's in the military, as he's at war, he starts wearing a yellow straw hat, which is not what you do. Like, when you're getting shot at, you try to wear camouflage, not yellow, bright yellow hats, right? But he didn't care. He kind of did it for two reasons. One, he wanted to die. He just felt like life was meaningless, and so he would be a target and get shot and be done. The other reason was kind of like, well, hey, I'm not going to hide from you. And he's just kind of like bowing up and like going after the enemy. But kind of what he said was one of the worst things happened to him. He got shot, but he got shot in the foot. He didn't die. He's like, so he's in the hospital, not able to be in battle anymore. And he reaches over for a Bible that his mom gave him. And he starts to read it. 
And God awakens him and meets him in that hospital. Andrew says that the words that used to make no sense to him at all were pulling him in now. He couldn't get enough. And he gets out of the hospital. Andrew's family were Christians, but his obsession with Scripture actually started concerning them. Andrew, you're, you're, you're going a bit far now, bud, don't you think? Andrew had a Christian girlfriend, and she wanted him to slow down a bit. She wanted a Christian, but not actually someone walking out and living fully for the Lord, living radically. She wanted a Christian husband and a comfortable Christianity that isn't really loyal to the king, but just adds a little bit of Jesus to her own kingdom. Friends, that is not the man in Psalm 1. He's delighting in God's word. He's thinking about it when? All the time. On his law, he meditates day and night. The word meditation can speak of muttering to yourself or pondering, dwelling on. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. He takes a text and carries it all day. In the night when sleep forsakes his eyes, he ponders the word of God. In prosperous days, he sings psalms from God's word. And in affliction's night, he finds comfort with the promises from the same book. This man sees how all of life connects to God's word. So he walks out, sees the sun. The sun is not just a thing to be taken for granted, but it's, it's God's created light formed by his hands to give warmth and grow vegetation and provide illumination. The rain is not an inconvenience. It's God's provision and blessing. The interactions with others is not just people that may be annoying or people that you like, but it's opportunities to worship God in dialogue with people in God's image, image bearers of God. So to walk, to work, to parent, to suffer, to struggle, to be joyful, to celebrate are all connected to God's word. It's as if all of life is looking through the lens of Scripture. It's like scriptural glasses or goggles that define all of life. And what does that man become? Just as the wicked are, have this downward spiral towards sin, there's a downward, but it's a downward rootedness towards strength and fruitfulness. Look at the text. It says, he's like the tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all he does, he prospers. There's a rootedness and groundedness of the person who delights in God's Word. They grow deep roots, so when storms come, they hold firm, and they are held firm by the Lord. There's a holding and being held at the same time. I've used the illustration. I stole it from C.J. Mahaney. He talks about when you see the lady in the parking lot holding her little kid. She, the little boy, you know, is holding mom, but there's that dangling awkward moment where, uh, where, where it's really the mom who's holding, right? It's mom that's holding even more than the dangling toddlers like, woo, I'm holding. We're being held. When we are mocked and scoffed at, we are holding and being held. When Satan whispers, did God really say we are holding and being held as we wield the sword of the Spirit like our Savior did in the desert? When we experience the test of adversity or the test of prosperity, 
we hold true by God's word. Deep roots, nourished by God's word, refreshed by God's truth. And these people, it says, grow good fruit. They bear abundant fruit, a life shared with others. Fruit isn't just for the person. Fruitfulness is for others, blessing others. Their leaf does not wither. Even in difficulty, drier seasons, struggles, they know the truths of God's word and they cling the psalm, Psalm 1, introduces us to the importance of God's word. It's, there's a reason it's, it's the gatekeeper. It, it introduces us to the rest of what we're going to study in the psalms, the songbook of the church. When we lament, and lamenting, which we'll see over the next several weeks, is not just like, oh, that was a hard circumstance. It was, it's grievous circumstances going on, deep difficult circumstances going on. Both some coming at us and some because of our own sin. We're going to talk about both of those. This introduces us to how we praise, how we bless, how we honor the Lord. The Psalms are not some sugar-coated reality. They are songs of God's people that are tried and true and well-worn and battle-tested for over 3,000 years. Friends, if you want to just dive into knowing the importance of God's word as the psalm states, studying Psalm 1 as we're doing today, study Psalm 19 and study Psalm 119. 119 and 119. Psalm 19 says this, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Does your soul need to be revived? This says God's word does that. Does does your your heart need wisdom? This says God's word does that. It points us to relationship with the creator, sustainer, and savior. And it forms people. And this isn't just like theoretically forming people. You can read history and this forms people. Some of you guys know who William Wilberforce is. He's one of my historic heroes. He helped abolish slavery in Great Britain. You know what he did each day on his trek to Parliament? He was a politician on his trek to Parliament. He recited Psalm 119, 176 verses. Took about 15 to 20 minutes on his walk to Parliament each day. He's meditating on God's Word. It formed him. Here's Psalm 119, verse 1. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. I just imagine Wilberforce leaving his home, heading toward Parliament, where he knows there's going to be a fight about slavery, and he's speaking this truth to himself. That's power, guys. It's real, life-changing shaping, God forming a man, a woman, a child. There's an undeniable influence of God's word. So friends, as we study the Psalms over the next several months, I pray that we would grow in a greater hunger for God's word. Commit to being in God's word daily. You will not regret that. You will not regret growing deeper in God's word. It will grow your spiritual life. You'll be both rooted deeper and grow more fruit at the same time. Christopher Ash says this, that the Psalms are a neglected treasure 
by today's church, get this, showing a fullness and richness of a relationship with God undreamt, undreamt of by so many of us half-hearted Christians. There is a fullness and richness of relationship with God that some of us haven't even dreamed of. We've been half-starved. Oh, friends, let us not be half-starved. Let us not dream just small dreams, but big dreams by God's Word. Let us not be small-hearted, small-minded, but deep-rooted in a right relationship with Christ, a life with depth and weight and integrity and fortitude and courage and endurance and resilience, a life grounded in God's Word. And like many of the wisdom psalms, David gets really blunt about the two paths and two very opposite destinations. Point number three, the undeniable outcome of saints and sinners. Verse 4 says, The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. So one who delights in God's word has these deep roots. The wicked are like chaff. They're like the outer shell of the wheat that just blows away. The wind just takes it away. Rootless, weightless, blowing away in the wind. Now, the English Bible misses a bit of the emphasis of verse 4. Scholar Jim Hamilton says it like this, so cover your ears if you have ear sensitivity. He's like, not so, the wicked. So basically, you're going into verse 3. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. The leaf doesn't wither, and all he does, he proffers, not so. Like, like there's an there's a emphasis here, a yelling. This is not what the wicked do. They're the ones who are, are walking and sitting and scoffing. Mocking God and his people with no delight in God or his word. But that will not last long. Their end is imminent. Verse 5, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the day of judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. All humanity will spend eternity in everlasting relationship with the Lord or everlasting condemnation and judgment of the Lord and from the Lord. Romans 14, 12 says each of us will give an account of himself to God. The wicked that stood firm, get this, stood firm in verse 1, they're standing, they take the stand against God. Now they can't stand. They can't stand in the day of judgment. They're antagonistic. They will not stand. Not so the wicked. They're at home with evil, but they're not at home in the congregation of the righteous, worshiping King Jesus. They are utterly uncomfortable. Look at verse 6. It's encouraging. Because it talks about the wicked, but look at those who are living for the Lord. It says, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Spurgeon emphasizes the word knows is continuous. This isn't just a one-time God knows you. This is a continuous God knowing you. God constantly making eye contact with his children, his care, his love, 
Christopher Ashe says this is a watching over the way of the righteous. So brother, sister in Christ, you are known. If you know Christ, you are known, you are loved, your Father watches over you. He knows you. The hairs on your head, the the thoughts of your heart, the struggles you have, the unbelief, the belief, the joys, the sorrows, the longings, the dreams. The psalm ends, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now here's the difficult irony of the doorkeeper psalm that walks us toward all the other psalms. We want to identify with the righteous. Don't you feel that? That's where, where I, I'm, I, want to, I want to identify with the righteous in this passage. That's me. But most scholars put Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 together. And what we find in Psalm 2 is that we, the peoples, the nations, are actually raging against God. What we find is that we are actually the wicked, the sinner, and the scoffer, and that there is only one blessed man of Psalm 1. There's only one who resists evil, walks uprightly, and continually meditates on God's word and has that integrity, and it is King Jesus. Friends, Psalm 1 tells us we need Jesus. We need to be linked to the blessed man. Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm chapter 1 because he's the king of Psalm chapter 2. We can only affiliate with the blessed man and the righteous if we are in Jesus. If we've been found in him, if our life is in him, if we've been united to him through his death and resurrection. So if you read Psalm 1 apart from looking to Christ, you will try harder to avoid the counsel of the wicked, you will try harder to read your Bibles. You will try harder and you will be devastated because you will fail over and over and over. People try the Christian life without the Spirit. Try the Christian life by their performance instead of trusting in Jesus' performance. Friends, you will fail. But if you've trusted the perfect man, the righteous one, Jesus Christ, and find your, the fullness of life in him, in his perfect life, in his substitutionary death, you are united to the resurrected one, you find hope. You read Psalm 1 and you find hope and power there. You have the spirit of Christ in you. And he empowers you to flee wickedness. You have the Spirit of Christ in you. He empowers you to delight in God's Word. You have the Spirit of Christ in you, and He empowers you to grow deep gospel roots that keep you in the storm. So friends, apart from Christ, we're chaff-filled, rootless, and on a path to hell. And friends, if that's you, we would beg you today to turn from that path It's the easy path. It's the wide path. It's the normal path. And turn from your sin and trust Jesus as your Savior. Don't just try harder. Don't just try to clean yourself up, clean your life up, and then I'll come to Christ. It doesn't work that way. You come to Christ with all your mess because Jesus died for the mess, for the sin, for the rebellion, for the wickedness 
that we walk by and sit in and scoff. Oh, friends, with Jesus there is life. And for those who are in Christ, there is life for you. Just as Jesus delighted in God's word, so can you. Just as Jesus fought Satan with word, so can you. Just as Jesus is the beloved one, so in him are you. Just as Jesus is firmly rooted, so can you. Just as Jesus bears much fruit by the Spirit, so can you. Oh, friends, what a song is Psalm chapter 1, because here's what it shows us. It shows us the undeniable influence of Jesus Christ as our King. Oh, there's influence of people, and there's the influence of God's Word, but there's an undeniable influence of Jesus as our King. Let's pray. Christopher, if you'll come on up. Father, we pray that we would be undeniably influenced by you, God, that we would have submitted hearts to you as king. Lord, that we wouldn't rage against you, but we would be in the blessed man. And because we are in Christ, man, woman, child, in Christ, oh Lord, let the deep roots go deeper. Let your word nourish us like planted by streams of water. Let your living water even refresh us now. God, that we would be rooted and grounded in the truth of your word. God, we need you. Lord, apart from you, we can do nothing. And so, Lord, as we pray now and sing and just ponder how you want to use this in our lives, I pray for new power new grace, refreshment by your Spirit, renewal. Fill us, Lord. We need you desperately. And for those who don't know you, Lord, save. Lord, may this be the day of their salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand together and we're going to sing this closing song.